would turn to Colossians chapter 2. What we want to continue doing is looking at passages that help us think through the things that we're experiencing in this country right now because I, I want us to be firmly convinced that the Word of God is sufficient for everything we go through. If we simply will take a hard look at it and pray that God would help us to see how it's connected, he will definitely do that for us. Obviously, this is July 4th weekend, and um, many of us in this country are celebrating our country. Unfortunately, uh, some of us don't seem to be celebrating our country this July 4th for various reasons. Um, Some of us um, see the good things that we should be thankful for. There seems to be another group of people that uh, see our nation as being something we should not be thankful for. Um, And if you spend any time on uh, social media or just listen to the news, you may hear different people talking about the need to listen and learn. Um, and that is very true. I think all of us would should pray, Lord, help me to listen well and be humble, open, and teachable. Uh, there was a post that I saw this week where someone was talking about the fact that they were getting some um, backlash because of their uh, posts regarding social issues like uh, Black Lives Matter and, and other things like that. And people were uh, saying that they're comments were insensitive and so their last uh, they kind of talked about that a little bit in their post and the last thing they said was if you're tired of being called out please be willing to grow and change through listening to others and educating yourself and so that's a big thing right now in our, in our country listen and learn and like I said there is a place for that we all should be listening and learning the, the real key question though is listening to who and learning from who that is that is a huge question, and that's one reason why I want us to look at Colossians chapter 2 this morning, because Paul helps us to think through who it is that we most need to listen to. Not that there aren't other people we need to listen to, but we need to know ultimately who is the one that's going to help us understand all the various things that we're hearing from various people. Last week we talked about the issue of racism and The issue of racism is definitely at the forefront of what's going on in our country. And yet there are things going on in our country that make us think, how does that have to do with uh, racism, like tearing down statues of Abraham Lincoln? What what is the connection between tearing down a statue of Abraham Lincoln, who was used uh, by God to help liberate the slaves? Uh, How is that connected to the idea that we're still experiencing slavery today and We need to uh, protest that. So there's a lot going on in our country that doesn't make sense simply on the basis of the issue of race. And so that's why I'd like to talk a little bit about what Paul has to say in Colossians chapter 2 and apply it to what we see going on in our country because I do believe that there are things driving the bus in our nation that go far beyond the issue of racism, even though that seems to be at the front of what's being talked about in various ways. And if you listen to other evangelical leaders, they'll talk about the fact that what is driving the bus is very important for us as a church to think about because it's dividing the church. 
And so even though and there's a sense in which we're going to be talking about politics today, we're really talking about the church and how it responds to what's going on in our country because there is a lot of division in the church right now, and it's a very, very sad thing. Um, ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have bad consequences. Uh, Charles Spurgeon had an experience when he was young. He was about 22 years old. He was preaching in front of a large crowd, thousands of people, um, in the Surrey Gardens Music Hall, and some pranksters decided to yell fire. And everybody started heading toward the exits, running toward the exits, and seven people were killed and 28 people were seriously injured in that incident. And uh, Charles Spurgeon's wife, Susanna, said that it affected Charles Spurgeon so much, she said, my beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter on her throne, and we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. So, someone yelled fire. There was no fire. People ran for the doors, and it had a profound effect on a lot of different people. My point is simply that ideas, the idea of fire, has consequences. Good ideas have good consequences. Bad ideas can have bad consequences. And that's what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 2. But before we get there, in Isaiah 65, 2, it says, God says, I have spread out my hands all day long to a, to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, following their own bad ideas. They're walking after bad ideas. And that's why Paul could say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the good ideas that we find in the word of God. So what I want us to see just very briefly this morning from Colossians chapter 2 is that worldly philosophy, ideas that are rooted in man's own sinful, natural, uh, apart from God reasoning, worldly philosophy seems to be necessary. It is anti-Christ and anti-cross, and it promises what it can't deliver. And what I'd like to do is just read it in sections, because it's a long chapter, and I'm going to take it section by section this morning. So if you would look at the first seven verses of uh, Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, And for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Worldly philosophy, the ideas of man apart from God, seems to be necessary to understand the world. It seems to be necessary to solve the problems that we have. It seems many, many times to appeal very much to our own desires, 
the questions that we have, and our desire to do something about the problems that we see in society. And yet, it's not as necessary as we think, at least in terms of uh, the kinds of things you're trying to deal with. Now, someone would say, what are you saying? Are you saying that uh, simply by having the Bible, we have all the knowledge that we need? Well, it depends on what kind of knowledge we're talking about. Uh, If someone were to say, you mean I don't have to go to med school to become a brain surgeon? I can just read my Bible and go to work on people? We'd, we'd say no. No, that would, that would be foolish to think that the Bible has all the knowledge you need in order to be a brain surgeon because the Bible wasn't designed to equip us to do brain surgery. But the Bible was designed to equip us to relate, relate to God and to each other and to deal with issues between people in society. It is very much a book about God and about people. So anytime we're dealing with God issues and people issues, whether it's one individual or a whole society, the Bible has to be our authority in that regard. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he says, I have a great struggle on your behalf. That idea of struggle actually goes back to the end of chapter 1 when he says in verse 28, we proclaim him, speaking of Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The word striving in verse 29 is reflected in the word struggle in verse 1 of chapter 2. And what he's struggling with is the fact that they are being presented with bad ideas. And they're being tempted to walk away from Christ because of the bad ideas that they, they are being presented with. He says in verse 3, well, he says at the end of verse 2, then verse 3, it says, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. So Paul says, I want to remind you that the Christ that you're trusting is a Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All means all there. It doesn't mean some with regard to a relationship with God, a relationship with people, each other. All wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ. And he says, I want to remind you of that because I don't want anyone to delude you with a persuasive argument that says Christ isn't all that you need. That you need ideas and philosophies and you need approaches that this Bible does not affirm, that this Bible does not talk about. And so he's saying, I'm I'm warning you that you're going to be on the wrong path if you think that there are, are philosophies that will help you in your relationship with other people or your relationship with God or with the broader issues of society that are found outside of Christ and the word of Christ. And so his struggle is, I'm afraid that you're beginning to listen and embrace ideas that are actually undermining your faith in Christ. Because that's what he says in verse 6 and verse 7, is that make sure that you're being established in your faith and growing in your faith in Christ. And in the context, it means your faith in Christ as having all the wisdom and knowledge you need 
for all the relationships in your life. And so the very first thing is we may think that uh, worldly philosophies, um, secular psychology, even popular opinions of people um, have keys to our relationships with God and with each other. And Paul is saying, unless it's confirmed and taught in the Bible, then you have to take a hard look at it because it's probably contrary to that. And wherever it is, it should be rejected as being human wisdom. He goes on to talk a little bit more about that and to exalt the Lord Jesus. Beginning in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Have you been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him, through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Sometimes we can think that the world has something to offer us with regard to relationships. Um, We may acknowledge as Christians, well, we know they're incomplete because they're not talking about what the Bible talks about, but we think that they could be helpful. And a lot of times what we do is we, we kind of listen to what the world says and and we try to make it fit in with what the Bible says. And ultimately, if we actually receive it appropriately, we're actually transforming it into something that we actually see in the Bible so that we're not really listening to what they're saying because the world is not coming from a biblical perspective. And whatever the world means by something, if it's really from the world, really from man and not from God, then it's going to be something that in its context doesn't mean what we might want it to mean as Christians. And therefore, it is anti-Christ and anti-cross. He talks about the fact, um, he says in verse 8, you know, don't, don't be taken captive, which means there is an effort to take you captive. D- but don't let that happen through philosophy and empty deception, which really is probably should be understood philosophy that is empty deception. According to the tradition of men, it's something that man has come up with. According to the elementary principles of the world, it's a very debated phrase. Uh, But one way you can take that is the ABCs of worldly thinking. This is the way the world tends to approach things. And therefore, even in the church, we are tempted to embrace the way uh, the world sees things and does things. And he says rather than according to Christ, which means it's opposed to Christ. It's not uh, affirming what Christ says. And he goes on to say in verse 10, Remember, in Christ you've been made complete. 
in the context, that means you have all the wisdom and knowledge you need in Christ. And so he goes on and he talks about what God has done for us in Christ, what Christ has done. And I'll just touch on one other thing. He talks about the fact in verse um, 13 um, that we were made alive together with Christ, having been forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, our record of failure with regard to the law of God. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's interesting, uh, in our day and time, um, there is a cancel culture. And the cancel culture is a culture that basically says, we're going to boycott you if you express an opinion we don't agree with. We're going to boycott you if there's something in your past that we don't like. We're going to cancel you. And the good news of the gospel is, um, the gospel only talks about one kind kind of cancellation. And that's the cancellation of our sins through Christ on the cross. And that kind of uh, cancellation never fits in with the cancel culture. Because cancel culture is condemnation culture. It's looking for people to condemn. The gospel is very much about the declaration of the fact that Christ took our sins upon himself and canceled them out in himself. One of the things that's very important to realize about what's going on in our country, that it's not simply about race. It's bigger than that. There's one um, man who's a spokesman for Black Lives Matter, the organization, who has talked recently about tearing down statues of the white Jesus. You may have heard about that. And um, he sees it as a form of white supremacy and a form of oppression, those pictures and statues of white Jesus or white Mary or whoever it might be. But the reality is that what's going on is, isn't simply about white Jesuses. It's about any Jesus, especially the biblical Jesus. Because a lot of what's driving the bus right now, and you can actually see this in the organization Black Lives Matter, even though they're fronting the issue of racism, their organization is, is about much more than racism. And it's they, the, the leaders of Black Lives Matter are outspoken Marxists. They, they acknowledge that. They say we are trained Marxists. What we're doing is we're acting on the ideas that we've gotten from Marx. And Karl Marx was one, along with those who followed him, like um, the Russian leader Vladimir Lenin, who said things like, it is the absolute duty of social democrats to make a public statement of their attitude towards religion. Social democracy bases its whole world act- outlook on scientific socialism, i.e. Marxism. The philosophical basis of Marxism, as Marx and Engels repeatedly declared, is dialectical materialism, a materialism which is absolutely atheistic and positively hostile to all religion. And so, why would they tear down statues of Abraham Lincoln when it's supposed to be about race? Why would they talk about tearing down statues of Jesus or anything else when it's supposed to be about race? Because it's not simply about race. It goes beyond that. There's a philosophy driving what's going on that that declares a different kind of salvation outside of Christ, 
a woke kind of salvation and declares a need for payment outside of the cross, sometimes talked about in terms of reparations or other things like that. And so if I had more time, we could talk more about that, but it is driven by a philosophy that is anti-Christ and anti-cross, and because of that, it makes all kinds of promises that it cannot deliver. So let me read the last part of Colossians chapter 2. It says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. I mentioned the cancel culture in verse 10. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. It's a lot of judging, a lot of condemning going on in our culture right now, and that's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about there, obviously in a different context with regard to different things. But he says in verse 18, let no one defraud you or rob you of what you have in Christ. And that's what bad ideas do. They rob you of the good that comes from uh, the truth of God. He highlights in verse 23 that all these things, this false philosophy, this worldly philosophy, has an appearance of wisdom. It sounds good. It sounds right, and obviously, who's not going to affirm that black lives matter? Yes, it matters. Should we be concerned about the poor? Of course we should be concerned about the poor. Is there injustice in our land that we need to deal with? Yes, indeed. But that's not all that it's about. There's a lot more to it. And so what's really driving it has the appearance of wisdom because it it connects with the things that we all should be concerned about, but the, the approach is the problem. And what's really being gone after is the problem. In this context, Paul could say that the way it was happening in that context was it was self-made religion, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body, which are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It could not deliver what it promised. And one of the illustrations as far as what's going on in our country today is the situation in Seattle with Chaz or, or Chomp, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone or Capitol Hill Occupying Protest. You've got people that are even sympathetic to what they were doing there that would say that they were trying to create a social justice utopia, but it failed Um, because, one writer said, and this guy was sympathetic to what they were trying to do, uh, that the chop is wholly peaceful is demonstrably false. 
So why are some claiming that? There are some outlets that want you to believe CHOP is peaceful because they simply want it to be. There are a lot of people who want that to work. They want no police. They want it to be truly autonomous. I want to do what I want to do. I want to be free from authorities and free from traditional constraints on my life. But this writer, who I said again, is sympathetic, says, but if you go in there, at least when you could, before they dismantled it, but you earn ire and harassment if you dare disagree publicly with one of the residents' many fringe beliefs. You have no First Amendment rights in the CHOP, and you know that cops aren't entering the area, which makes tense situations potentially more dangerous. And yes, there, there's frequent violence. Don't forget, CHOP, then Chaz, was created out of violence. And there's much more that could be said about that. But the title of the, the uh, article was CHOP Seattle is very clearly not a peaceful utopia, but maybe it can be. So the writer is sympathetic, but he's willing to at least acknowledge it didn't work out. And that's the deceptiveness of worldly philosophy is people will look at it and see where people have tried to apply it and it hasn't worked, and they think, well, they must not have really done it right. They must not have really done everything that they were supposed to do. Because then it would work. And so worldly philosophy gives people hope, but it's a false, false hope. Well, let me just touch on some things uh, as I have to wrap up here. Um, Many, many people that I've listened to in the evangelical church that I highly respect would argue that what we're dealing with here in our country goes far beyond the issue of race. It's the issue of a philosophy that is many times tied to what is called cultural Marxism. And there are different ideas that go with this kind of perspective. One of these ideas is you have to see the whole society in terms of groups. You divide people into groups, especially the oppressed and the oppressor, however you might define those groups. And then you approve of people not based on what they do but based on based on what group they're in so that if you're in the oppressor group all that you do is wrong if you're in the oppressed group then you get a pass that's why they don't arrest people who are looting and tearing destroying property and things like that why because they're part of the oppressed group that, that's the philosophy. Why would they not arrest them? It's because of a philosophy behind it that allows those things to go on. And why would they say they're justified? Because they believe in a zero-sum game. Zero-sum game means it's like a pie. There's only so many pieces to the pie. And if this group of people has half the pie, then it means you stole it from the other people. You ne- it's, it's a zero-sum game. Whatever, if I have five pieces of pie and Mike only has two, then the reason why Mike only has two is because I stole his pie. Therefore, I get, to, I get the right to burn down his business. That's the philosophy behind it. It's, it's justice, right? You took away my pieces of the pie, so I get to go and steal the TV out of your shop. 
It's all based on the way people are thinking. That's the only way you can justify lawless behavior is if you believe it is justified. You have to really believe that that's the reality of what's going on. And therefore, those who do lawless things do them because they're victims. They're not personally responsible. It's a victim mentality that, mentality that is encouraging people to do what they're doing. But the ultimate goal is equal outcomes. Social justice is not about biblical justice. When you hear the term social justice, if you hear it used in the university, if you hear it used by people who aren't Christians, they're not talking about biblical justice according to Leviticus 19. They're talking about the redistribution of power and wealth. That's what social justice means. It means taking from those who have and giving it to those who have not and doing so through whatever means is required. That's the philosophy that drives that. And the freedom that people want in this movement goes beyond just the issue of race relations. It goes into the issue of um, groups like, I mentioned the, putting people in different groups. You have the black versus white you have women versus men. You have heterosexual versus homosexual. You have traditional genders versus transgender. All those different groups factor into this. And the movement is about setting people free from traditional Judeo-Christian standards of morality. That's the philosophy behind it. And why is, why is this, there's so much talk about systemic injustice because it, it validates the overthrow of society. Why is that? If something is systemic, it means the only way you can remedy it is by getting rid of it. Police reform isn't enough. You have to overthrow it completely. Because if it's systemic, it means that the oppressor class has set it up to be oppressive. And so you cannot make any real progress until you tear it down and rebuild something else. That's why there's this feeling of anarchy in our land. We've got to tear it down so we can rebuild it. And the whole idea of Marx was to bring order out of chaos. You create chaos, you pit groups against each other, and then you rebuild society. And the key player is the state. The state is God. The state is the one who provides. The state is the one who controls. And that's why um, in other places like Russia and China, where they've pursued these things, the state is God. The state provides. The state's in control. The state ultimately becomes tyrannical and the most murderous vehicle in the history of the world. That's the way it plays out. And ultimately, it's, it's not about equality because if you read Marx and others, their goal wasn't simply to get on an equal playing field. It was to reverse everything so that Marx could say, the last capitalist is the one we hang who sold us the rope. So it's not about equality. It's about a reversing of things. It's about reverse oppression uh, that they feel is justified. That's why revolution is really the ultimate, ultimate goal. 
And yet there's a utopia that they're, they're looking for. They really believe that this would be a utopia, and yet there is no utopia apart from Christ. The main point of Colossians 2 is that our sufficiency is in Christ, that all the wisdom we need, all the knowledge we need, all the power we need, all the hope that we need is in Jesus. It's not found through the world and through worldly approaches and worldly philosophy. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. In Christ we have a love that can never be fathomed, a life that can never die, a righteousness that can never be tarnished, a peace that can never be understood, a rest that can never be disturbed, a joy that can never be diminished, a hope that can never be disappointed, a glory that can never be clouded, a light that can never be darkened, a purity that can never be defiled, a beauty that can never be marred, a wisdom that can never be baffled, resources that can never be exhausted. Our hope is in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us to believe that in Jesus we have all that we need, all the wisdom we need, all the knowledge we need, all the grace we need to deal with what is going on in our country, to deal with our own relationships, to deal with our relationship with you and with in society. May we exalt Jesus as we uh, walk uh, through these days together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.